1989, when I was 21, I came to my first meditation retreat here. <clears throat> and I really didn't know much about Buddhism. Um, I figured the best way to learn about something was to dive in. So without knowing much, um, I came on my first retreat. And one thing I realized on that first retreat was that the experience of this intensive meditation was very much like things I had already done. Um, it was just better at doing what I had already loved. I think my, uh, my, my path, uh, my, the thing I'm most passionate about this life actually was ignited when I was 12. I had the opportunity to go up to the Canadian North Woods for six weeks and live out uh, in the woods with uh, about 12, uh, 12 other people. Canoeing from one campsite to the next through lakes and through rivers. Um, it was kind of an intense experience for a 12 year old. Um, and the first week was very hard, uh, just getting used to living out there, getting used to um, the bugs, getting used to the, the heat, sleeping on the ground. Um, eating food that I wasn't used to. But after that first week of getting through that hard transition, um, I began to have a much better time than I ever had. And I didn't quite understand why, why those days up in the woods were so, um, were so incredible. And it didn't make much sense to me because I had access to a lot less pleasure. Growing up in a middle-class life, there was just you know hot water and comfortable bed, and air conditioning when I needed it, wanted it. So, where was this happiness coming from? This happiness that I had so very little uh, up there in the woods. One pair of clothing that I packed and one that I wore, and I'd swap it out when I needed to wash. So, where was this happiness coming from? It wasn't middle-class happiness, so I didn't didn't quite get it. I think my life, without, without knowing it at the time, I think my life has been about trying to answer that question. Where does that non-material, non-pleasure-based happiness come from? Then fast forwarding to that first retreat when I was 21, um, I began to see the parallels and I'd like to offer that tonight. <clears throat> what I'm offering tonight is um, sort of a, a simplified version of you might call Buddhist psychology. And I uh, had the blessing of um, doing many different retreats through the years, through the last 20 years of practice. Um, two three-month retreats here with some of the best teachers uh, that I've ever met. And then I went to Burma for a year and I got to ordain as a monk and live as a monk for a year and work with two of the greatest teachers in Burma. Um, and then to cap that off, I came back here and I did a nine-month retreat um, trying to understand what had happened in Burma and what I was taught there, trying to digest it. And then the last 10 years, still trying to digest that. A lot of digesting. Um, but what was complicated about it was <clears throat> taking this form that's very specific and not like the rest of your life and trying to understand what's being offered here, what's being offered, and how does this lead to this deeper happiness? And where does this happiness come from? Where does this meaning come from? Uh, it can be mystical at first. So the pieces I have down on this piece of paper are sort of a, a rough 
simplistic map of the mind seen from a Theravadan Buddhist perspective. There actually are two maps. <laughs> and you might find the second map much more useful. The second map is found on the backside. <laughs> and if you find that this map is way too stressful, too many dots and circles and whatever, uh, probably more often this will be much more useful than this. <laughs> so if you can endure this for an hour for the rest of your life, you can uh, take refuge in this over here. And then one thing to say about maps is that um, the map of Boston is nothing like Boston itself, right? And the map of New York is nothing like New York itself. So whatever could be put down on a piece of paper is really nothing like the actual mind, the actual heart, in all the circumstances that this is meant to apply. So just so you know, I don't actually think it's this simple. Um, but I think this might be helpful. So there, to start with, <clears throat> there are these three larger circles in the middle of the map. And if we could just focus on that for a second. There's an M, there's an S, and there's a plus minus. These three circles are very core to um, Theravadan Buddhist psychology. The circle with the M stands for the mind. And in the view of this, uh, this view of the mind, of the, um, the mind and the heart are, are united. So the mind is not necessarily the, uh, the brain. Um, the mind here is all the modes of knowing, all the modes of being awake. Um, it's your firsthand subjective experience in any time of the day, in any day of the week, or the, any day of the year. So it's all the things that happen, how you know, how you are awake in your life. That's the activity of the mind. It includes uh, this incredible ability to be aware of what's happening. All the modes of cognition that are happening, whether you're focused in one moment, whether you're spacious in another, whether you're spaced out, um, whether things seem bright and clear, whether things are calm, that's all these many modes of knowing. And it also includes these incredible capacities of heart, all the beautiful capacities of love and respect, compassion, and some of the more challenging um, aspects of the heart. Um, anger and irritation, um, sense of vengeance, uh, sadness, um, feeling lost, feeling lonely. So this one circle, this one circle of M, standing for the mind, uh, contains an incredible array of uh, what it means to be alive, what it is to be um, a conscious being. This M, as you've seen, changes all the time. One consistent thing is that there's always an experience. You don't sort of wake up in the morning and then there's nothing from 10 to 2 and then it clicks on back again unless you take a nap. But if you're not taking a nap, the mind is on all day long. And then you'll see that the emotions come and go, kind of like the weather. Um, sometimes uh, peace will roll in. And then on its own, peace will roll out and confusion will roll in. One mood gives way to the next. The ability to focus arises in one moment, lasts for a certain amount of time, then you lose the ability to focus. You can't really control it so much. You can influence it, but you cannot control it. 
So this uh, one circle of mind, this one circle on the map, um, changes all the time. The next circle uh, is S, and that stands for your sensory experience. So the mind is on, and the emotions are coming and going, and your senses are alive. So all day long, you have access to sight and sound, taste and smell. You have access to body sensations all day long. And also contained within this S is actually all the thoughts and concepts that pass through your mind, all the songs in your head. In Buddhist psychology, they're considered something that you are sensing. You are sensing a thought in your mind. The thought isn't doing the sensing. That's a little different than how I, I um, thought of things from growing up. I thought my thoughts were the ones perceiving, but thoughts tend to be uh, kind of like um, sounds. They arise, a thought will arise and pass, and it, it's known by the mind. Not so important to split that hair right now, but just uh, that's what the S stands for. It's all the, uh, all the experiences we have. Out in daily life, we usually can't parse um, experiences down to the individual sensations, but on retreat, we get to do that. And it's an incredible insight to see that something as complex as being in the dining room, um, which is the most complex part of being on retreat, the most stimulation, <laughs> that, <clears throat> that's really a collection of intense sounds, uh, intense visuals. Uh, there's food happening. There's desires coming for different foods and um, retractions from others and the sound of the hot water and the sound of people eating, clanking on their plates. and the dishwasher's going, it's a lot of stimulation. What we might call the lunch experience is many different, different sensory experiences happening. And you might get to a point in this retreat where you actually could see that all break down into little tiny moments of sensation. You're more likely to find it in sitting and in walking just because the actual experience is a little more um, simple. So this is also changing all day long and you cannot control it. You can influence the experiences you have, but you cannot control them. I could not have made that truck not pass by as much as I wish there was silence. Um, trucks will pass by. So other things happen in life. You will be affected by sensations that you cannot control. And then the third big circle is this plus minus. And this is, this is an incredibly important part in Buddhist psychology. The Pali word, the old word for this, it's called Vedana, and we call it the feeling tone. But it's what happens when your sensory experience meets your mind and they come together. That union you might find pleasant. When they come together, you might find it unpleasant. That would be the minus, the pleasant would be the plus. Or as they come together, you might find that neutral. You couldn't quite say whether it was pleasant or unpleasant. Maybe uh, it's just sort of a, a, a medium experience. This plus minus is so important because it ends up determining how we respond to experience. So it's, it's sort of like the diamond point sometimes of experience given uh, how we respond. So that's the first piece of Buddhist psychology, understanding that the, you have a mind, the mind is on. The on part of the mind is your firsthand experience, your subjective experience. It's changing all the time. You cannot. Uh, make it just happy. You can try and you might get little moments where you can make it happy, but um, it's bound to change. 
you have sensory experience and that's changing all the time. You can influence it. You can go to a restaurant and you're more likely to get the tastes you're looking for at an Indian restaurant, for example, if that's what you're looking for. But you cannot actually control what's going to come, what sensory experience is going to arise. And then this plus minus is changing all the time too. Um, for example, I could start eating chocolate and at first it would be a plus and I keep eating chocolate and the plus starts to come down and I start eating more chocolate then it's neutral. And I keep eating chocolate and it starts to become unpleasant and I keep eating chocolate and finally I get sick and I can't stand any more chocolate. And then chocolate has become an unpleasant experience. <laughs> for some of you, I, may, I know someone here has an allergy to chocolate and it's already uh, a complicated issue. But um, you, there's no thing you can rely on that will only give you pleasant experiences you can uh, set up the perfect weekend and it can rain and it can ruin your plans. You can, um, I, I often think that Las Vegas is this great attempt to only give you pleasant experiences. Just pack it as far as so that every sense door is bombarded with as much pleasure as possible. And I know people go there and have a horrible time. <laughs> like America, zero. <laughs> We tried. That was our, our attempt at happiness. <laughs> so <clears throat> another thing to say about this is that this is happening all the time. And you can't stop it, which is some of the more, more unnerving part, is that you, you cannot stop the vulnerability you have to how much change there is. You cannot control your emotions. You can influence them, but you cannot fix them. You cannot control experiences. You, you can influence them, but you cannot fix them. And you cannot only get positive experiences. Having done this practice for a long time, my mind, uh, my old mind, still is trying this game. And it's amazing. It won't give it up. It still is in the pursuit of a plus sign. Give me the plus. Give me the plus. And <clears throat> it's not such a bad strategy as strategies go to kind of increase the pleasure in your life and to do what you can to avoid the displeasure, to the pain. Um, but it's beyond your control to do that. So if that's your only strategy, you're going to be quite lost when unpleasant experiences arise or when pleasant experiences fade. If that's the only thing you have going for you, the pursuit of pleasure, happiness dependent on pleasant experience, you're, only, you're going to get uh, uh, limited returns on that strategy. So I don't think we should throw out that strategy, but it needs to be complemented with a, a different strategy. And this is the strategy that the Buddha offered. And this, these, are, these are the uh, larger um, uh, ovals, I guess, on this page. There are two of them. One is a cycle that leads to greater awakening and greater happiness through the awakening. And the other is um, the cycle of suffering that if we follow these, um, these patterns, we usually end up um, suffering for it. So let's start with, with the, uh, the good news, the awakening cycle. What is different <clears throat> about the Buddhist teachings is that the first thing we do, no matter if it's an unpleasant experience, a neutral experience, or a pleasant experience, before we respond to it, we first fully accept what is happening. We show up for that experience. Positive experience we show up, but we also show up for unpleasant experiences before we, we instantly react 
And that goes a little bit against the grain, but you all have been trying that some. To deepen this capacity of receptivity to receive one moment after another, it's good to have this balance of curiosity, interest, sort of the, 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 um, the looking into experience, wanting to see what it is, being curious about it, and deep acceptance and relaxation on the other. So you're savoring experience and cultivating a sense of relaxation at the same time. Sort of like the cruise ship, you're, you're uh, relaxed but enjoying it. No matter what the experience, see if you can settle back and see what is this? What is this? If you take the reception, the reception far enough, you open up into deeper intimacy. So for example, I could receive uh, this bell. Okay, it's black, it's a bell. I'm receiving, I'm looking at it. Okay, it's a bell. Then I actually spend time with it and I can see all the variations of color. And I can see its shape and I can see the reflection actually of my own knee in the side of it. And I begin to spend time with this, I begins to open up and open up and open up. So this is where we move into the, the next stage of uh, what I'm calling here intimacy. Intimacy with your direct experience. The metaphor might be like uh, someone comes to your door, rings the doorbell, you open the door, you greet them, but you don't really let them into your house. How different that is if you actually let someone in, have a cup of tea and get to know them. You'll notice this in your practice when you're breathing and like, yes, yes, that's a breath. You're definitely receiving the breath, but you haven't really dropped down into intimacy with your breath. It's just another breath. It's just another breath. Versus those moments that you might find, whether it's during the sitting practice or during the walking, or when you're there for one cup of tea, or when you really taste um, the salad you're eating, or you feel what it's like as you're going to sleep and you really enjoy that process. Anytime you fully give yourself over, that's when you're actually deepening into this intimacy with life. It makes sense to do that with a positive experience. I mean, they're sort of like, that would be great to just settle back into positive experiences. Now, we'll go into a little bit how we even struggle there. But to receive unpleasant experiences is a challenge. So we start with the ones that we can tolerate, the ones that we can possibly stretch into. Um, one time I was asked not to scratch my nose during meditation just as an experiment. I'm like, okay, I can do that. I mean, I've suffered worse things than an itch on my nose. So I sat there and like, okay, there it is. Yep, one's arising. I'm not scratching, but the hand's going up and put it down, the hand's going up and put it down. I'm like, oh God, this is driving me crazy. <laughs> this is, this is, and then it was fascinating because then my mind started really flipping out and a part of me was like, whoa, you're, you're losing it. <laughs> and then it actually started going nuts. And it actually said something like, so darn, like, kill me now. It's like, you must be joking. And so then the instruction was get down into it and feel it. What is this thing? So receive the itch, okay, I'm receiving the itch, but can I get intimate with this itch? Well, I had to claw through like all this, this freak out. It's like, what is this itch? And I go down, down. It's like, I can't even find it. It's so small. And I'm freaking out. And I just relax, relax, relax. And finally, it's just like, God, I can barely even feel the thing. And I'm going, kill me now. And it's just like this tiny little dot on my nose. I'm like, I can't even like tell what it is. I, went, I almost committed suicide over this. And I was like, oh my God, it's like this. Someone could not be tickling my nose more gently with a feather. 
and I almost wanted to kill myself. Come on. But I got to see like the, how much we flip out. If I flip out over an itch, how am I going to take like being stuck in traffic, or how am I going to take you know really difficult things in life, really difficult, difficult things we have to face? But I, it I began to show me what the um, exaggeration of the freakout could be, and what it means to go down to the core of an experience, to the sensory level, not freak out, and then see what what that core element is. And often you can deal with the core element of what's unpleasant. The freaking out is, is intolerable, but the actual core thing may, may be much smaller. So coming down into that, when you come into intimacy, <clears throat> you open up into this, um, this divine mystery because things are changing all the time. And so you're changing all the time and what you're sensing is changing all the time. And you begin to look at a flower and all of a sudden you see like it's not just yellow and red, it's got shades of orange in there. And then, oh my God, it's got these delicate bits. And, and oh my God, I never smelled it before. And you start getting into one flower and it keeps opening and opening and opening and opening. It almost becomes fathomless when you can really put your attention on something, fully receive it. And that's where uh, what the Buddha would call probably um, actual love arises. Not the, I feel good around your company, but when you get in that bad mood, I don't feel so good, Co could you not do that? <laughs> getting into who are you really? Okay, you have good moods and you have bad moods, but I'm so curious in who you are, who you actually are, that you come into true love, intimacy with what is actually true in another person or in an experience. Coming around with this deeper intimacy in this field of constant change, you come into a fluid sense of yourself. You are not fixed. There's nothing uh, noun-ish about you. You're all verb. You're, you're changing all the time. You know, you're pulsing, you're breathing, you're digesting food, you're growing older, you're having a, a cumulated sense of experiences. You're not a fixed thing. You're, you actually are in, uh, impacted by your environment and you impact your environment. So you're in constant flux. If you can drop down fully into this more fluid sense, it makes you uh, vulnerable to life. Life touches you and you end up touching life. You're not, you're not protected by pulling back and being a fixed person. So often what I see in myself is trying to define myself in the good range. If I could just fix myself in the good range, make that more permanent, then I wouldn't be so vulnerable to life. Having spent a lot of time canoeing, I have a lot of sort of um, association with water and flowing water down the rivers and in the lakes. And one of the beautiful things about water is that um, anything you put into it, water touches the, the surface of it evenly. And it doesn't matter what you put into it. You could put in flowers, you could put in broken glass. Uh, you put your whole body into it or just your little finger. Water responds immediately in this intimate way to touch the full surface of whatever is presented into it. The fluid self is like that. And water is also very adaptable. So if I had five different shaped glasses and I took water and I poured it from one glass to the next, without hesitation, the water would take the shape of the next glass and the next one and the next one. We can be like that. We can drop into our changing nature and then drop in so that if you're here, then you go to lunch and then you go out for a walk and one point leave the retreat and uh, wherever you end up going, 
you can actually adapt to those circumstances if you allow yourself to be this fluid, intimate and fluid. Wherever you go, you'll actually have a really beautiful connection with where you end up arriving and then moving on to the next thing. So that's this fluid self. And then unlike water, which um, is a little bit passive, um, when we come into our fluid sense because of this great intimacy, what ends up arising out of us is a beautiful response to our environment. So when you're intimate with, uh, with life, without really needing anybody to tell you to do the right thing, the uh, beautiful response rises out of you. So again, starting where it's easy, if you're hanging out with a, a four-year-old and they're laughing and playing and they run in front of you, then they trip and they fall right in front of you, instantly you care and you see if it's hurt. Yeah. Lift them up and see if they're okay. It doesn't, you don't have to think that one over so much. In other circumstances, you can have the same beautiful automatic response from your fluid self. It's one of these um, amazing parts of being in this human body with this human mind and this human heart that as it begins to become free, it also begins to become very beautifully responsive and responsible. You can encourage it, um, but it also ends up being spontaneous as it arises. And this is a feedback loop. So the work is to do, this is the, mindful, the mindfulness work, the work of mindfulness is to receive your experience moment by moment by moment, no matter what occurs. As you do that, intimacy opens up. Your sense of self begins to change and become adaptable, and these more beautiful responses end up coming out of you. That means that you flow into the next experience, and that's also your setup well to receive it. And then the next experience happens and you're set up well to receive it, develop intimacy, fluidity, and responsiveness. Um, and, I, and I've seen this to be true. This is sort of what was presented as possible. And through my own experience, I've seen that this is true. And I offer that you all can also explore this. This is also um, where my, my curiosity about doing social activism and being of service has come from. I used to work in a shelter for homeless and abused teenagers. And after a 10 day meditation retreat like this, I would go in there and I wouldn't have my, my armor on of someone who knew what they were doing and could meet any tough kid and push back just as hard as they were pushing. I'd actually walk in kind of vulnerable and think, oh, this is not gonna be good. This, I'm, I need to have more psychic armor on, but I wouldn't have it. And what that would permit this kid coming into the shelter is they wouldn't need to have their psychic armor on. And within moments, off would come the leather jacket and they would sit down and we would end up talking. And they wouldn't sense in me anybody they had to defend themselves against. And within minutes, we would be talking about things that they cared about. And within minutes, it would be obvious what the solution was. I mean, many times that happened um, where it might take days to build trust with a more solid stance by being more disarmed myself, it allowed other people not to have their armaments and they could be disarmed. We could connect. And then uh, interesting things would come out of that space. There's another cycle here, and that's the, um, this cycle of suffering. And it's one of the, um, 
the more incredible things that the Buddha pointed out is how suffering occurs. And from his point of view, it's not due to the experience. So there are things in this that you'll experience in life that are unpleasant. Your relationship to them will be unpleasant. And taking like small ones, like itches or uh, mosquitoes, for example, um, they land on you, they prick, there's a little bit of blood drawn, and it itches for a while, and then they fly off. Um, without this insight, many of us blame the outside world for um, our happiness and our displeasure. The Buddha was pointing at any experience you can actually receive and go up with and awaken from any experience, but we actually cause a lot of our own suffering. If there's a positive experience and we don't just receive it for what it is, we begin to struggle and wrestle with the experience. This is where I have down the word resistance. We're actually resisting the flow of present time experience. It's not pleasant enough. Someone is generous and makes a hundred cookies for a hundred people, but I want two. <laughs> so rather than being delighted that someone took the time to make a hundred cookies and feeling that and enjoying the one cookie I have, where I am, I actually want two. And so it's pleasant, but it's not pleasant enough. And so I struggle over that. And the whole time I'm eating it, I'm actually dreaming about a second cookie. And I miss even the first. I don't even get like the pleasure of the first because I'm lost struggling over it. This can be taken into uh, more powerful experiences where um, like the love we have for other people uh, can be so beautiful, so pleasant, but they change or we change and we don't have access to that connection in that moment. And there's some heartbreak over that. How we struggle with other people and ourselves to try to stay in the pleasant range of experience um, distorts a lot of relationships. Clinging, clinging to the weekend that things were so good even months after the fact and trying to get back there and missing all the time that you're actually with this person. Um, with the uh, unpleasant experiences, rather than receive them, they're hard enough as they are, but we add suffering to them by resisting them. We're, we think we're doing ourselves a favor by pushing back on unpleasant experiences, but that strain of pushing back against unpleasant experiences causes a lot of stress in us. So I was on a retreat recently, and a, one of the yogis on the retreat had a fly land on his ear, fly off, and he said, I can't take it. I can't take it, these flies. I'm trying my best, but I can't take it. And I was like, oh, just be mindful. Da, 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 da. And then that same fly in the next sitting came on my ear, and I was like, oh. <laughs> it was intense. It was intense. I was like, well, I just told him to be mindful, and I guess I got to do it too. So I just sat there, like, oh, the fly, the fly, the fly. It's, God, it's right on my ear. But then I got curious about it, and I was amazed. I could actually feel six little feet walking up and down on my ear. And what would have been like too much became, because I was able to receive it, it was fascinating. I was like, my God, this ear is so sensitive. It can tell that there are six feet on a fly. And I know where that fly is on my ear. And when it flew away, I could actually still feel where I had walked. And what was kind of and, uh, something bursting in on my life and disrupting it became a miracle without just all I had to do is receive it, which is not small, but receiving it, opening up to the experience, and actually finding something uh, immeasurable in how um, 
sensitive my ear is and that this thing can fly. God, it's amazing. It's this thing can just do what it wants three, in three dimensions. But we have these habits. So back to the, uh, back to the suffering. <laughs> uh, stay on stay on message um, so craving more pleasant than we're getting more of this plus um, pushing back against the unpleasant and then with the neutral we tend to neglect it so it's just sort of like the breath tends to be kind of neutral it might be pleasant but it's pleasant neutral it's not like the most amazing thing ever it's, you know, it's the breath so it's it's there all the time, we get used to it. So our habit is to neglect um, neutral experiences. You can notice this happening as where you're not quite in flow of, with your direct experience. There's some struggle, there's some resistance going on. And you can see this in, in your direct experience. What's harder to see is if this takes another step. And rather than resisting experience and having some struggle with it, you begin to clamp down and reject experience. This is where attitudes in the mind harden. And simple craving becomes clinging, where you just have this grip. I deserve a second cookie. <laughs> if they had really cared, they would have made 200 cookies. <laughs> and I've seen my mind do this. I mean, it's, no, I'm not proud, but uh, I've seen my mind get lost, um, wishing there was just a little more pleasure, and then watching the tightness of attitude that comes in. If somebody really loved me, they'd do X, Y, and Z. So I start getting into this tighter relationship around pleasure, and I, I can't let go of it. And when it's harder to see because the mind begins justifying this tightness. It takes up an attitude and a stance of tightness. The same with the, the aversion to the mosquitoes, the aversions to the flies, the aversions to the itches, the aversions to the, aversions to the hot weather. Can, they also can go a step further and what was just unpleasant and kind of a struggle over it, you can start to get really angry and start to really justify your anger. This person should not be on the earth. <laughs> They're breathing too loud, time to get them off the planet. Or mosquitoes, we ought to find a way of like gassing the whole forest and getting rid of all the mosquitoes. That would be a good thing. And you can actually, your mind will start like broadcasting these really intense opinions and they sound right. This is how some of the distortion comes in um, around this, this, uh, this phase of rejecting experience, really hardening on it. In places that we neglect, we just go numb on. We couldn't even begin to feel it. Some of what we do when we do this meditation practice is we're actually down in our bodies and we usually neglect our bodies. So it's hard in the first couple of days because in some areas we're just numb. We have nerves there, but we haven't really attended them. So they don't give us much information. Part of what we're doing is going back out of numbness and back into a sense of embodiment. Unlike the fluid self, which is free and intimate, there's this more rigid self. What holds the clinging together, the mortar that holds the brick of these opinions together, is this, uh, this belief and this orientation around being a fixed self. I, I could, I was, flowing and adaptable until this happened. And then I couldn't meet that experience and I started pitting myself against it. And then you start getting this really strong, tight I story, me story, me versus them, me versus you, me versus it. 
There's this tightness broken off from life. There's no intimacy happening. It's just a lot of greed happening. How can I get that second cookie? How can I get this? How can I get that? How can I win the lottery? <laughs> or how can I get rid of this? Um, this I story, which is something that the Buddha pointed out, is really this, uh, this tight, broken off sense of self um, that feels very real. It isn't, but in the moment it feels real and we get lost there. So I call that the rigid self and I have it in quotes because there really isn't a self uh, in a hard, permanent way. It is always changing, but in the moment it feels like something has gotten strong and permanent. It's a bit more like ice than the water. You know, you freeze ice in one circumstance, let it slide out of the cup and it doesn't take into the next experience. So as you go through experiences with this more tight sense of self, the whole day can be frustrating. You tighten up in one moment and you're not able to meet the next. You know, you see, um, you have a hard phone call. This happened, I was visiting my dad and his little kids. I had a hard phone call with a friend and then the kids came in and I just couldn't meet them. They sort of rushed in and I just wasn't really able to meet their joy. And it was kind of sad because I was tight and I had to take time to melt that down again so I could actually uh, enjoy the beauty of their company. This sort of little ice cube of a self or billiard ball self tends to bounce off experience. So you go from one experience to the next and you tend to be reactive. Rather than responsive, you tend to react against experience. And that sets up the cycle of suffering where you can stay in a foul mood and anger can lead to frustration, can lead to sadness, can lead to loneliness, can lead to despondency, can lead to hopelessness. You, you can stay down in this um, cycle. The good news about that <clears throat> is that the upper circle, when you're willing to train in it, is more powerful than the lower. So when you come into and find yourself struggling and trapped down in a suffering cycle, you learn to receive that experience. So when you're resisting something, you stop and feel what it's like to resist, become intimate with resistance. You, know, you might find that you have um, a pain in one of your shoulders arising and after a while it's tiring and you start to f tighten up around it and and maybe you feel dejected like oh, I'm not a good meditator I have all this pain I can't deal with. what you might be able to do is use mindfulness to receive both the sense of frustration and this pain and begin patiently to come into relationship with that hard experience and if you can actually put in the time, it's difficult, but if you can put in the time to receive the frustration and the anger and the irritation, these hard sensations that are arising, you can begin to melt some of the resistance to it and maybe, maybe all the way down to the core experience. And usually that's just, you know, it's a tightness or a burning. Maybe it's very intense but you don't necessarily have to suffer over it. The suffering comes from all that resistance to the unpleasant. There's a whole medical field where people are studying this and how to work with chronic pain using mindfulness. 
and you can greatly reduce uh, the amount of pain medication you're on and the amount of um, numbness to your body and the, and the hopelessness of working with chronic pain down to something that's much more manageable just using mindfulness in this trajectory. And so you get to experience this on this retreat long enough that you can develop this as a, a power onto, onto yourself. You can also receive the sense of self that's arising. You know, if it's sort of fluid, like, um, like you know, I'm actually, I'm good at motorcycle riding. Yeah, I am. So you sort of like say that and then you move on. You're not stuck there. It's like, yeah, I'm good at this. You're not polishing your, your little statue of yourself that I'm really good at this and I deserve a medal and this is one of the things I get to keep as something I'm good at. You're not clinging to this identity. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm actually pretty good at that, and you move on. That's more fluid, but if you get tight and you can feel that you're tight on it, what would it mean to use this upper cycle of mindfulness to open up to the experience of tightness? It's a kind of unpleasant, but if you can actually sit there and like, God, I'm really caught here. This is my ego trying to bind itself into something permanent, trying to be permanently good at something. Or when we we're really hard on ourselves and we kind of bind ourselves into like, I'm really bad at this and I'll never be good at this one thing. You start beating ourselves up over that. What would it be like to go into that experience? The rising in meditation, you're sitting there breathing and this habit takes over. Like, okay, here it is. What is it like? Well, these are the thoughts that are happening. This is the story being told. It's thoughts in my mind right now. These are the emotions connected to this sense of self. This is the belief I have about myself. You know, it's, it's something arising now. It may not be true, but it's what's arising now. If you can do this, the receiving, the intimacy, and opening up and being adaptable to that experience, many of these things begin to unwind in their own time. They begin to come apart one by one, habits that uh, were not helpful in the past, begin to break apart. It's one of the beauties of this practice that things that are really um, true and useful and good and do um, bring happiness to you, they tend to thrive with conscious awareness. And the parts that are not so helpful tend to dissolve and break apart when you become aware of them. Just with simple awareness, you don't really have to go in there with a pickaxe and and go into your own mind and break these things apart. Often just with patient awareness, steady patient awareness, many of these habits in our mind begin to transform. The ones that are actually helpful flourish, and the ones that are not so helpful begin to um, wither just with conscious uh, present time awareness. It's quite spectacular how that happens. So that's kind of a lot, and you know, maybe it's not that complicated, maybe it seemed complicated, um, but this is what the practice is about. After many, many years of practicing, this is about, I mean, there, there's nuances in there that are inter interesting. There are ways that these expand and become more and more powerful, but uh, this is roughly what, um, after my experience of practicing, um, I see as the real working core of what the Buddha had to offer and how we can awaken 
in degrees more and more, we can expand the range of experiences we can be present in. And therefore, we've expanded the range that we can be free. And that expansion, as I've seen, can keep going and possibly all the way to where you never get caught again. And that would be this great uh, promise of this more full-blown awakening, more full-blown enlightenment. And maybe one last image to end on is one of the great things about coming back here to um, New England is that when you look at these stone walls, these used to be farmland. And what the farmers used to have to do is they would plow a little section of land, pull up a lot of rocks because New England's very rocky. And they would make walls out of the rocks and they would have that much more land they could um, farm. And in the next season they would go in and take the time to plow out a little more land clear out a little more rocks and they'd have a little more space to farm. And that's much like what we're doing here. You know, we go, we extend the range. Yesterday I couldn't be with the, the sense of anger with my dad, for example. But today I've just started to really feel what that is. Yesterday I had to kind of fight back because he, he did this and he did that. But today I can just start to feel the heat of the anger and the stories and the disappointment and all that. And then Day by day, slowly this thing, I go in there and I pull out the rocks and I expand my field so that I can actually be present in places I wasn't before and then grow beautiful things there, beautiful nourishing things on land that used to be rocky. This actually happens in this practice, having worked with enough people and uh, enough of my friends doing this practice that you really do increase the range in mind and heart of experiences that before you couldn't open up to. So as you actually hit experiences that are difficult, that's exciting. It's exciting to us because uh, it may be hard for you, but it's exciting for us. And one day, hopefully, it's exciting to you too because you're actually, your mind is beginning to go into areas it couldn't go before. It's beginning to shed light where you couldn't before. Shedding light into any difficult experience, uh, an obsessive fantasy or uh, a strong rage or disappointment. Um, these great arenas of sleepiness where you can just sit there like a rocking chair. <laughs> and you actually, it's, you know, you only have one little atom of light, but you put it on that experience like, ah, the mind is so dull. Isn't this interesting? <laughs> you know, it's, this is no supercomputer. This is just one little transistor and it's off. <laughs> just being, getting to extend the range, extend the range. And what's great is no matter what, is happening, that's a place you can extend range. If it's sleepiness, extend it there. If it's restlessness, extend it there. If it's happiness, extend it there. All day long, you're going to be given uh, boatloads of experience, and each one can be a place of expansion where you show up a little more. You go from receiving it and deepen the sense of intimacy in all these places and start reclaiming the land, start reclaiming your mind and heart as places you can abide. Let's just sit for a minute and let this settle. And again, if this is interesting for you, um, you can have it as a reflection. I wouldn't spend too much time turning the wheels. It's one of the dangers of presenting this is that we can spend a lot of time up here. What we want to do is actually spend time down here. We want to actually be receptive moment by moment, not thinking so much. But this is an encouragement to drop into what's happening moment by moment and really taste it, really savor it. So just to 
point in that direction if you would find a posture and close your eyes. Take a few deep breaths and let the word settle. And taking a few deep breaths and come back into that rapport, either with sound, if that's your primary refuge or the breath or the body. Open up that receptivity to the simple connection to now. And then moment by moment, whatever arises, see what you can to ease yourself into a more receptive, intimate connection to whatever is naturally arising. Thank you for your practice. You're invited to the chanting. <laughs> so we have a walking period and for some of you there's a work period. And then at nine, we'll have the last sitting We'll begin with chanting, a little sitting after that, and then if you don't have to come, don't worry about coming to the whole sitting, just the chanting a little time afterwards, and then I'll ring a bell and those who are tired or need to do more work can leave and the rest will stay sitting. Hope to see you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.